This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. This time we are on the Middle East channel. I'm excited to be your host for my first time on the Middle East channel. I'm Dora Rusi, Senior Director of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience at the American Sephardi Federation. We try to see beyond the Ashkenazi world and glimpse into the greater Jewish mosaic. Today we're glimpsing into the greater world mosaic and we're delighted to speak with Dr. Nicholas W. Smith. I'm going to leave it at that, and you can expect, uh, who received his PhD in African history from Northwestern University, where his research won awards, including an International Dissertation Research Fellowship from the SSRC. His research was funded by the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council and was nominated for the Royal Historical Society History Today Prize. He has written several articles, including for the Journal of Eastern African Studies and Rutledge series on Indian Ocean and Trans- uh, sorry, Trans-Asia. He is currently qualifying as a solicitor in the UK. And today we will be speaking about his book, Colonial Chaos in the Southern Red Sea, A History of Violence from 1830 to the 20th Century. Welcome, Dr. Smith, and thank you for joining us here today. I'm, first, before I even start with the questions, I just want to say the title of the book is so fun, Colonial Chaos. So oh, thank you. think about that. Um, but I do want you at some point to talk about how you came up with that. First, start with telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, so I did my PhD in Northwestern, uh, as you say, on broadly on this topic, on the topic that the, the book worked out. Um, so the background to um, Somali piracy and uh, this whole issue of maritime violence um as it emerged in the colonial period um so that was my thesis was really the basis for the book i after graduating uh moved into law and so um now i'm qualifying as a solicitor in the uk um and i do a, a mix of legal work and um quite a bit of human rights work so yeah so so it's slightly different to uh, uh, the research that I was doing, but nevertheless, some linked. I definitely think it's linked, especially if you're still working somewhat in the region to understand the mentality and personalities and the history of what they went through. Sure. Yeah. And also the legal systems. Um, yeah, very much. Definitely. Um, so why did you start with the Southern Red Sea? What drew you to that region in the first place? You're obviously not from that region. Well, so so uh, as I said a moment ago, uh, I started this project really during the Somali piracy crisis, 
Um, so this was like the peak of um, Somali piracy in 2011. Um, and this was a time when you had pirate attacks, like literally every, for certain periods of the year, literally every day. There were, in, two, in 2011, almost like a thousand attempted hijackings um, at the very peak. These were attacks by like, small boats against huge international car cargo ships in this kind of vital choke point um and who's not fascinated by that i mean I, the idea of a pirate has this like almost you know mythical quality it, it demands i think to be explained to be understood to be analyzed and it was really it was that it was piracy that drew me in um to this region uh, because it came like out almost out of nowhere and then suddenly the eyes of the world were on Somalia and there was this idea that it that definitely emerged that, that this was a kind of anachronism also almost that it had just uh, completely come out of nowhere and I guess my instinct was well this 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 can't have come out of nowhere you know S Somalia as I started looking into it had this long history of shipwreck of stranded seafarers uh traditions of wrecking and all kinds of maritime perils that were embroiling people in the region like for over millennia um there are ancient egyptian sources which attest to this um so it's been going it it, it has a, a history of violence over a very long period of time in 2011 i was studying at the school of oriental and african studies in London, um, which is a really vibrant, interesting, exciting place to be. It also happens to be next door to the British Library, where the India Office records were all housed. And so I, I went with this kind of historical curiosity to these archives, looking for, I guess, a, a historical explanation, a historical account of Somali piracy in, the, in exactly the same way as I think we look for solutions and ideas and explanations in the past with lots of other things, you know, with financial crises and pandemics. Um, and the archives really did open up this like whole array of questions around what piracy is, who gets to define it, how they define it, what strategic ends those definitions serve. Uh, and then uh, how coastal peoples use violence um without kind of wanting to like to jump ahead too much um what i found was that this wasn't a question of poverty or opportunity or even really uh clan or anything um that some of the explanations that we saw say in the media and it had absolutely everything to do with diplomacy and international relations and so that was what took me to these these this primary theme of the book um which is uh diplomacy so which yeah. is the colonial chaos like you're saying now exactly, like, yeah. Really yeah reason behind it it's colonial chaos <laughs> yeah so in the description of the book states that colonial chaos offers an understanding of the relationship between the region's colonial past and its co contemporary instability can you give us a bit of insight into what that means uh, you did now can you expand on that a little bit and also the concept of colonial chaos i'm still going back to that just because it's it, it the alliteration the concept of the word i don't know i just 
who came up with the title? Can we just start with that? <laughs> um, I, I, I'm pretty sure I can take credit for the title. I, would, I didn't want to take credit for the title when it was like either my partner who suggested it or, or my publisher, uh, even trickier. The, 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 no, the, I, the title I, I came up with after kind of much chopping and changing. Um, and initially I think I, I took the, the kind of subtitle. So the, the I, this idea of a history of violence, um, but actually I felt like that sort of flattened the subject somehow that it, it made it sound as though this was some continuous history of violence, which is very much against what the argument of the book is. Um, and so really I wanted in the title to kind of focus on to focus um uh our attention on this colonial moment and what that uh has meant and and what the kind of legacy of colonialism has been so um so yeah that colonial chaos came out of that kind of full pan um i mean to talk about uh the relationship between colonial chaos and the contemporary um instability in the region that we see i guess i mean so i said i i was thinking a lot about somali piracy it was 2011 and then when i was doing my phd it was um you know uh, 2012 and 13 and the piracy crisis was suppressed but the red sea was not i don't think in any meaningful sense at peace you know the suppression of piracy consumed enormous resources in terms of um like the international military response so there were and there still are to this day in fact large naval task forces which keep a patrol of uh the gulf of aden corridor and added to this are the security measures that have come up um in commercial shipping which they take in terms of armed guards and razor wire around the perimeter of ships and water cannons to repel potential attacks. Um, and then alongside piracy, you have these other issues that, um, have emerged in its wake, like arms smuggling and, um, narcotics dealing and people trafficking. And then in addition, since 2011, we've seen the Houthi insurgency in, on, on the coast of Yemen, we've seen civil war in Ethiopia. Um, we've seen smaller, nevertheless significant kind of international events like the grounding of the Ever Given, which had its own set of tensions which emerge in the wake of it. Um, Djibouti's nationalization of, of, of the, his port, which was owned by Dubai's DP World. Um, the list goes on. Somalia there's a Somali-Kenya maritime, a very kind of heated maritime border dispute. Um, you know, I'm not saying that there, there, there have been very remarkable and significant efforts to de-escalate that area. Um, things like the diplomatic forum, the uh, diplomatic forums like the Red Sea Forum, and then um, efforts like the Djibouti Code of Conduct, which have all sought to strengthen regional legal processes um, and then there's also been capacity building efforts, um, in regional countries to build, uh, the capacity to prosecute 
pirates and other um, kinds of illegal activity. But the fact remains that the, the region is is highly militarized. And I look, I guess this is again to jump ahead slightly, but I look in the conclusion of the book um, and I I talk about um, that my idea was, I guess, to explore this darker side to liberal internationalism and competitive pluralism. Um, and I think the Red Sea is a very clear example of where Europeans in the late 19th century and colonialism ushered in a new a new wave, a new era, a new generation of rulers with a more aggressive approach to the maritime realm and a more aggressive approach to international politics, which we're still grappling with. Um, so yeah, that's that that's the kind of link that I see. And I guess hopefully this is something that we'll go into in more depth. Yeah, well, it also very much yeah. just looks very basically into what you do today in terms of maritime maritime law. So yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, there's a link there too. Yeah. You mentioned now, I don't know, four or five different places. Can you just give us a geographic region of what we're talking about, a layout of what the Southern Red Sea means? If you had to define Yes. It? Yeah. Um, I think I think there's probably, uh, as with most things, there's a long and a short answer to this. The, the short answer is, like the lower half of the Red Sea is the area that covers roughly from Sudan, the south of Saudi Arabia, down through Yemen, Eritrea, Djibouti, and Somalia into the Gulf of Aden. There is a, I think, a longer answer that that um, is that recognizes the kind of complexity of the region's political geography um, and the fact that many of the boundaries that we see today give a misleading impression of a region with, I think, multiple discrete histories, multiple national histories, even though the region, as we see it, was only divided up into national parcels for a kind of very tiny fraction of its past, the idea of Somalia or even to some extent, Ethiopia and Yemen uh, are post-colonial, and on and and what lay before them was a much more complex set of kind of commercial connections uh, and imperial connections um, that that knit the region together. Um, in terms of, for example, the Mamluk or the Ottoman Empire or the even the Sultanate of Muscat. Um, which didn't have the same level of impact as European colonialism, but nevertheless, you saw periods of time where, you know, an, an empire from the highlands of Yemen was controlling parts of Northeast Africa and then vice versa. And, um, and then they exactly. Yeah. Um, and then they were interacting with smaller political entities all along the coast and kind of folding them periodically into one empire and then another, or even at the same time. Um, so, you know, uh, the Magitine Sultanate, which uh, I talk about in the book, but then also Mogadishu Sultanate and the Adjuran Sultanate in um, Northern Somalia as well. And then they, they, they were associated governorships and there was all a big kind of mix. And so this idea of a very neat kind of national political map just, you know, doesn't, um, it, it, it elides a huge amount of richness that, uh, we see in 
the past. And I think probably one of the things that I was trying to do with the book was to follow this trend in Indian Ocean history, which is the the I guess the adjacent um, body of water, uh, which was there's this early wave of scholarship in the post-colonial period. Um, and I'm thinking of books like Chowdhury's trade, The Trading World of Asia, which were in some ways an attempt to push back against a colonial notion of the Indian Ocean as being, you know, just a collection of coastal regions, just kind of unconnected strips of sand, you know, there's no coherence. And then the British, you know, fold it together and create this commercial, vigorous, interconnected space um and so there was this this movement following following decolonization to start writing this much longer history of the indian ocean and then scholars after chowdhury and and more recently start to look in more depth i think at those connections within the indian ocean between the different um coasts between the different commercial entrepot between the different ports and so on um and i wanted to kind of try and do something along those lines something in the red sea looking at the different links between the different parts of um the red sea and i i, I was i guess particularly interested in a the links between different parts of the coast um, so the say the Gulf of Tudjer and the Asia coast, the coast in Yemen, um, which changed a lot during the colonial era. But then I was particularly interested in to look at the nature of the political connections because a lot of studies um, from Chowdhury onwards, and even more recently, there's a focus on economics, and I thought that there was a really interesting political story in the Red Sea. Um, so I kind of selected case studies, which were really biographies um, that I sh thought shed light on. These Before we shoes. get into the case studies, yeah. I do want to get into the case studies because that's most of the book. But I wanted to step back because I want to talk about the colonial time period and also what you're talking about, the interconnectedness that was there before. Particularly, the reason I actually picked up this book was because of our upcoming conference on the multicultural port of Aden yeah. um, in the... In Cambridge. So the, in your book, you try to approach the region from a multicultural angle rather than from just one discipline or just one division of the peoples there, like you just said, like they they were very much interconnected um, even before the colonial area, era, sorry. Uh, can you can you talk a bit about the significance of approaching this through multiple lenses and disciplines and covering the full region? Yeah, I think I, so First of all, the region was just overflowing with international interest in the second half of the 19th century. Um, so as as I as we talked about just a minute ago, we talked about we talked about these kind of imperial attentions that it had attracted in the region's deeper past, but in the 19th century and really particularly after the advent of steam shipping and when steamshipping became effective, so when it could, say, traverse the whole of the Red Sea without needing to refuel constantly, 
um so this was kind of from about the 1860s or 1870s onwards from that moment it became or the 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 huge strategic value of the area suddenly became unlocked and it became completely overloaded with imperial actors so it's well known that the british settled aden in 1839 they'd actually been in um a neighboring port in mukher even before then um piggybacking largely on south asian trade networks and so had the ottomans they'd been there um a long time ago and then they'd had a resurgent interest in the mid 1800s um in par in response to the british conquest of aden um and then the french arrived in the gulf of tadra in the 1860s uh, the Italians infiltrate the Red Sea via Eritrea and also via um, Zanzibar and Mogadishu. But then even you have uh, these um, imperial powers that didn't leave a permanent colonial mark on the region, like the Spanish, the Germans, even the Russians and Americans were all kind of embroiled. And it, in the, in what was, I guess, a, a very deliberate at times even you know, frantic clamor for strategic control, um, which speaks to its, its significance. You know, it's, it's, it lies between um, South Asia and Europe. So it's, the, it's this shortened version of the trade route around the Cape of um, Good Hope in Southern Africa, um, which colonists recognized and they wanted to establish a dominant spot you know, on the most advent advantageous outpost, uh, you know, they wanted the best natural harbor, the most sheltered bay, or um, you know, most suitable headland for a for a lighthouse. Um, and these were all very coastal, very maritime perspectives that colonial powers had on the region. They were thinking about it very much from the perspective of shipping and trade. Um, mm -hmm. and maritime safety. And so, yeah, I think to come to this second part of your question about looking at the area through different disciplinary lenses, um, I agree the book is is sort of a, is kind of a bricolage. It borrows from lots of disciplines. Um, it roves across lots of different time periods and places. Maybe it's even, you know, slightly restless. It, borrowing i i guess from from its subject which is the sea and it, i take a kind of biographical maritime intercontinental you know there's african history there's middle east history south asian history there's legal history diplomatic political i i read a lot of political science and i and what was the benefit of this and how did it help? Well, I suppose writing about a very chaotic time, a time of, um, and maybe this is something we come back to, but what, what this chaos really means, but it's a time of intense change. It's a very formative moment. It's also a change on lots of different fronts. So it's, it's not just a change in social history. It's a change in, you know, political and economic and diplomatic history. And I think this unsettled nature of the past called for lots of different lenses, you know, for an account of lots of different kinds of change. 
um, when there was not only a new international politics, but a new domestic politics, new commercial dynamics. And I wanted, I think, beneath all of this to anchor it in something a bit more um, stable in some ways, something a bit more human, and to see this maelstrom not just from the coast or from the deck of a colonial steamship but from the perspective of particular people along the coast um and so that was to go back to this um theme of case studies where the idea of you know biography came from i think this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Right, and I think you, you dwindled it to us so that it's a very readable um, piece so that we can actually understand everything you just said, which is a lot of information put together. And yet, if we see it through the vantage point of these case studies, it makes us um, make it, it makes it comprehensible for an average reader as well. I mean, it bring, really brings it out so that people can understand and read it. So that is why you did it. So well, you mentioned a few different places where you did some research. Was there any place that you felt was really the base of your research or any type of research that really was your focus? Um, yes. So, I mean, it, well, I guess the first thing to say, as I said before, was that, um, is primarily a kind of archival study. Um, so I was looking principally in European colonial archives. Uh, so I looked in the India office records and then at the French, um, uh, Archive d'Outremer. Um, so the French colonial records and French foreign office records, and then, um, again, in the Italian foreign office records. Um, but then there were also places like, uh, I was looking in the, the, the League of Nations archives, um, and then some, some kind of smaller archives that, um, are dotted around, um, Europe as well as doing some interviews in, um, uh, in the Horn of Africa, and then also some memorable interviews in um, France. I did a, a a very memorable interview with Guillaume de Montfred, who was uh, Henri de Montfred's grandson, um, and he uh, very kindly invited me to go and have a aperitif in his grandfather's apartment. So I actually went to go um and see um Henri de Montfred's the place where he had lived um at some stage um so that was super exciting but yeah the the governmental approach I guess initially what I was thinking because it kind of the 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 sources raise really considerable methodological challenges and I think the fair, so the the my initial approach was I am looking for the people who would kind of slip through the the net of a colonial archive. So I'm looking for, 
you know, quote, pirates or outlaws, people who are not normally written about. Um, and that was what I was thinking initially was that I would have to look very carefully through, um, through these official kind of memoranda and reports and through these legal cases, which maybe, maybe caught people in the governmental net and to see, um, this, this slightly more obscured history that way. And actually what I found the way that my research developed in the course of looking through these archives was that the really interesting parts were not so much the people who were trying to escape the notice of colonial governments, but the people who were really trying to engage colonial governments that were trying to negotiate their place in this emerging colonial order. And so again, this comes back to colonial chaos and this moment of change and this moment of um, upheaval is that people along the coast really saw it as a, a, or some no so I, sh I should say some part some sections of the uh, coastal communities it was an enormous opportunity as well as this moment of of um of violence and of um being kind of uh being kind of pushed out of a tradition you know of, of a more um, established way of doing things. It, it became a, a, a moment in which you could do things uh, differently. And so that I think became the most interesting thing about the archival research was to see the way that people were engaging with um, new forms of government in the, in the region. And so we talked about that you use case studies. Can you just give us an, I don't want you to have to read the whole book right now, but can you two yeah. I didn't say this. What are each of the case studies, just so people get an idea? Yeah, of course. So um, I start, the, the idea is to move through, the, the idea with the case studies was to move through time and to move through space in the Red Sea. Um, and uh, the case studies hopefully do that. So I start uh, in Magitania, which is co roughly contemporary Puntland. Um, so northeast uh, Africa, um, the very tip of uh, the northeastern Somali coastline today, with uh, a series of rulers, the first of which was Noor Uthman, and then Uthman Mahmoud Yusuf, and uh, a governor in a neighboring port called Yusuf Ali. Um, and I look at their relationship with shipwrecks and with particularly the British in Aden, but then subsequently with uh, the Italians and also uh, to some extent with the Germans and the French and the way that a new style of um, more highly militarized international and domestic politics um, emerged. And I focus in particular on this moment of really severe um, uh, civil upheaval where as a consequence of the way that Yusuf Ali was engaging with the British and as a consequence of the uh, East India Company's kind of at times I think deliberate efforts to sow division and at other moments just 
kind of incompetence, bureaucratic forgetfulness, um, that they shifted allegiance from Uthman, who was an established ruler, to Yusuf Ali and allowed Yusuf Ali to set up this breakaway state um, in further south in Somalia. Uh, so I look at that moment, which uh, takes place broadly between about 1840 and 1900. We then move to um, Yemen. And I think by this by this time, it's the 1880s, 1890s, early 20th century. And at this point, um, there is a much more entrenched style of uh, military patronage politics, which has emerged where the British have tried to form alliance, regional alliances with established rulers. This has, as we saw with Uthman and Yusuf Ali, alienated sections of those um, communities, and they've moved away. And in order to uh, galvanize support, in order to sustain themselves, often engaging with, in this case, uh, the Ottomans and the Italians and the French for military patronage. And so it's, it, I, I look at this movement um, known as the Zaranic, run uh, or presided over by a character called Ahmed um, Fatini, uh, which I think is probably more most correctly described as essentially a, a, a military movement. It had maybe around 10,000 followers um, at its peak. And they were doing what I think we would more straightforwardly think of as piracy in terms of harassing local shipping and using those tactics in order to kind of reel in uh, local colonial governments and to negotiate treaties and to extract more patronage um, and to kind of gather for the movement to gather pace. And then we move to French Somaliland so the other side, so we've gone from Somalia and moved north to the coast of Yemen, and then um, we move slightly west to the Gulf of Tadjura and look at the, a brief kind of look at the history of French colonization in the region. And I mentioned earlier these kind of frantic attempts to um, gain a strategic foothold, uh, which you see in French Somaliland, I think, very clearly. And we look at Henri de Montfred, who arrived in French Somaliland in um, the early 1910s. He was reasonably well connected. Um, so he came with an introduction to um, the then governor of French Somaliland and I think managed to insert himself into this new kind of strategic atmosphere and to engage very uh deftly in many ways with this this kind of economy of uh using arms to try to create alliances and to unsettle other european empires in the region and to expand french influence so the french had this reasonably long-standing um interest in uh, a small peninsula which was within the Zarenic sphere. So that is Sheikh Said, which was just on the other side of the Red Sea from um, the Gulf of Tadra. And I think the French envisioned holding both sides of the coast in order to 
really have a complete control over this choke point, this kind of um, narrowing of the Red Sea, which is still incredibly strategically important today. Um, and Omid Monfred recognized these strategic ambitions. He recognized this emerging economy of military patronage and so on. And he managed to, uh, to become a really a very influential figure in French Somaliland, um, who really did quite well out of the first world war and the, the upheaval and conflict, which took place during that time, um, I think there was a, a kind of slowing of this geopolitical tension. It was a slight easing in the 1920s, which saw his, um, his approach become somewhat undermined. And I think that explains why he withdrew the prologue to that is that he became a very famous writer and advent of adventure stories in, um, in French and described himself much more as this kind of regular, so precisely the kind of person who I was expecting to see, I guess, in the governmental archives, an outlaw, a pirate, a person who existed completely beyond the reach of colonial authorities, but you know, it, there was actually this far greater uh, ambiguity about what he was doing. He was interacting with the French colonial state for sure, you know, and he actually in the end had these, I think, designs to expand French Somaliland by gathering together this group of individuals who he was going to create this much, you know, larger French colony, which encompassed parts of Ethiopia. So he wasn't, I think, in any straightforward sense, you know, an outlaw as he kind of describes himself in his books, but that that made him particularly fascinating, I think. Right. And you refer to it as legitimate and illegitimate violence, uh, yeah. state-sponsored versus private violence. Um, the, the term violence also comes up a lot, obviously, in the book. Um, yeah. Do you want to address the concept of violence and... I mean, you just talked about legitimate versus illegitimate, but if you have something to expand on that as well. Yeah, I think um, there were probably, there's, well, there's lots of different dimensions, I guess, to the question. I, the, the first um, thing I suppose probably to talk about is this distinction between private and state-sponsored violence um, and to think about... And play into each other. So yeah. Like the the to think about how um, artificial that division can be, um, and to go back to the um, to the story of piracy, which was kind of where we started, um, and to think about the legal definition of piracy, uh, which I um, include at some stage in the book, which is that you know it's an act of violence, which is committed for private ends on the high seas so this very clear distinction against state-sponsored um or state violence which is an act of of war and you can see why this um distinction this this uh effort to make violence illegitimate when it's associated with private actors is appealing to um colonial officials because 
you know, it had been established since Roman times that piracy was this particularly villainous crime um, that Cicero describes uh, pirates as the enemies of all mankind. Um, you know, because mostly piracy threatened free commerce, um, which was often the whole basis of um, of an empire. It was a it was a major factor in the creation of an empire. So piracy became this this idea of anyone who would um, threaten an empire, and it gave also at the same time the people who would prosecute piracy a universal jurisdiction, at least outside of people's territorial waters on the high seas. And that's what um, a writer called Alfred Rubin describes as like the imperial law of piracy. So in this case, it's an essentially, a, a, it becomes a political device um, in, in many ways divorced from common and international law. But the, but the idea of a division between state and private and legitimate and illegitimate violence also creates a host of problems, um, conceptual problems, but also practical, factual problems, because we start having to ask things like, you know, what is a state and who acts on a state's authority, which is particularly difficult in a period of chaos. You know, in, in um, Elizabethan England, you had piracy, which was state-sanctioned because the Elizabeth, uh, it was it was a way of harassing Spanish uh, empire builders in the Atlantic, and then there was a clampdown which followed uh, after tensions with Spain abated, and it became this way of describing the bottom rungs of the merchant marines and dispossessed naval sailors and um, you know people who would wish perhaps to provoke a fight. And piracy was became associated with something almost uh, treasonous. But we saw in the example of Henri de Montfred, for example, where actually the relationship between the state and private violence kind of continued. This Elizabethan, this early Elizabethan mechanism where you have state-sponsored um, attacks was, I think, maybe it never disappeared or it was rekindled, but, it, but you certainly see this very powerful dynamic in the Red Sea where um, private individuals are using violence in order to negotiate a place for either for their government or frankly for themselves for their own movement within this um uh against the backdrop of a period of intense kind of change and upheaval um so yeah i think i, I the the trying to trying to look more closely at that distinction between trying to look more closely but also trying to break it down the distinction between state and non-state and legitimate and illegitimate is is um a strong theme in the book as well yeah yeah and i think it's a theme that needs to be discussed in the context of today and around the many different things um so i think it's a great starting point for people to use like you said if you need the context of history i think this is a great context for people to have discussions about what's going on today, not only in that region, but around the world. But I want to go back to um, the concept of the treaties. You, I mentioned it, and it's in the book. And the European, you mentioned that the Europeans' treaty negotiations, I quote, did not simply paper over conflicts. They were also themselves a source of considerable tension, even bloodshed. 
And of course, as an American, my mom goes to the treaties made with the Native Americans by Europeans and the full tribes being wiped out in the end. Um, so including what you included as the blaming of the violence on the primitive, primitive character, and I'm doing quotes, um, of local groups. Do you see a comparison or at least continuation of the same colonial philosophy? What are you, your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I think I, well, I don't, um, I don't know enough about um, North American history uh, to talk about the patterns of colonial treaty making which prevailed there. But I think it's certainly resonant in a kind of wider colonial context in South American history or Australasian history and Asian history. I think you see these same patterns of, well, probably colonial betrayal where um, you have these treaties which are made and then reneged on, and then the treaties themselves set in motion this pattern of civil division, which colonial powers then exploit and um, use to their own advantage. And then this sets in motion an, an, a new round of treaty making, and you just have this, this uh, steady deterioration of the political landscape, which ultimately resolves into some kind of chaos potentially um i think i guess the point the point i think that i was trying um to emphasize in looking at treaties and looking at them uh, in really at some length certainly in the first couple of chapters was again to respond to i think a, a trend in um uh, african history in particular where there was this tendency, I think, in in some of the earlier historiography to see treaties as relatively um, superficial or perhaps insubstantial, things which Europeans foisted onto unwitting rulers, which I, I didn't see any evidence for. More recent scholarship has interpreted this non-European engagement with treaties as much more complex and more serious. And I think we definitely see that um, in the case study, particularly the first Majatine case study, um, where there's very deep internal discussion about the kinds of things that could be agreed to and the way in which they would be agreed and what the consequences of agreeing different things might be. And then a very real sense, I think, of having been um having been wrong-footed by the non-observance of these treaties by europeans or by the misunderstandings which uh inhered in different approaches to treaty making between um european colonial powers and between somali rulers and i think that and 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 so that did resolve into instability. It did resolve into um, a kind of breakdown of um, this of a of a it, of, of a kind of diminishing of treaties as an instrument of international law. But I don't think that was because treaties were used in a flippant way. I think it's because they were not they were not observed because. There were disputes which emerged out of them and also they in some ways a victim of their own success in that a group of people you know adjacent to say uthman mahmoud yusuf could recognize the power of a treaty 
to uh to gain their own independence from this long-standing regional ruler um and use them you know in order to set up their own kind of um state in the region at least the for a time and so i guess the 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 idea was to 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 yet yeah, to look at, at treaties as something um quite serious and as something quite kind of nuanced and quite um complex which i yeah i hope um that kind of makes sense because i think some of the the some of the negotiations that surrounded treaties were incredible there was a huge amount of um kind of uh back and forth and a human a huge amount of you know people agreeing one thing and then negotiating another and it was it became very very complicated so um but it's but it was su is super interesting right i'm just thinking this type of book is one of those books where you can put it in a college classroom and do a whole semester on the different concepts that can come out of it the idea of what is a treatise the idea of what is violence the idea of um legal and illegal violent. I mean, these are just so many large concepts that you've put into there in the context of the Southern Red Sea. So I want to thank you for sharing it with us. Um, and thank you for everything we've been talking about. Now in the New Books Network, we also like to know what we expect to see next. So besides all of your uh, lawyerly duties. Endeavors, what, yeah. <laughs> what type of thing can we, what are you working on now? Well, so, um, well, thank you very much for having me, first of all. Um, I think the first thing that I'm thinking about, which is a, is kind of a small project, although that is anything ever a small project, um, is a paper about fishing licenses. So, which, um, again, is That's some, it, yeah, <laughs> which again is kind of a, on the face of it, maybe a bit mundane, but um, there's actually a huge amount of um interesting stuff which goes on behind them it was and and this i think directly arose from from the book so it was a part of the narrative that i felt didn't fit um it didn't it wasn't a, a case study in the way that i'd wanted to um include the other case studies but it was a it was particularly relating to the post-colonial management of um the maritime economy in somalia and the use of fishing licenses and how that created um, different interest groups, different businesses, companies that would profit from and manage uh, fishing resources in the waters of Somalia. And that didn't have a direct relationship with piracy, but it did leave this um, legacy of as it sort of helped to build on, I suppose, this legacy of a militarized um quite contentious approach to the sea and has i think on a slightly more optimistic note become in some ways one of the ways in which piracy has resolved because um there there's been a new law in somalia uh, in relation to the division of um uh the division of revenue that's generated through the distribution of fishing licenses um and i and i think it is it or it has been an example of reasonably effective law. And so um, it, I think it would be kind of interesting to look at that um, post-colonial period through the lens of fishing licenses. So that is one thing. I think 
in the larger scheme of things, I'm I, so um, some of the law that I'm uh, working on is human rights law. I'd be very keen to write something bigger on this, something kind of um, more book-like, perhaps. Um, one of the things that um, happened, I guess, regrettably often in uh, colonial chaos or in the stories that I was telling about colonial chaos was that international law failed. Um, these were attempts to regulate people trafficking, to regulate the arms trade, and they didn't work. So what would be, I think, super interesting and would marry up the the work that I'm doing um, outside of academia at the moment with my academic interests would be to look at effective legal me mechanisms through which um, human rights type issues are resolved um, and to maybe look at the Red Sea or perhaps even the Mediterranean or um, an adjacent region through that lens. So yeah, that's that's the sort of next idea, although it's very um, fluid at the moment. I have to say that even the fishing uh, paper sounds quite interesting after all that, but I would definitely think that I know personally, and I'm sure the listeners will also be very interested to know if there is legal precedent for positive effect on the um, the human trade or... Yeah, well, this is the question, yeah. yeah. I think that's a great question, and I'm very curious to see the answer. So we will be following you. Um, thank you again, and thank you to everyone who's been listening. We've been speaking with Dr. Nicholas Stevenson-Smith, and hit about his colonial chaos in the Southern Red Sea, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. It has been a true pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me.